0: Hello, yes. Live from New York City, it's the Dream Shakers podcast. I'm your host, George Nunez, here alongside with my co-host, Devon Odom, and today we have Pierre Laguerre, the founder and CEO of Fleeting, a platform that provides shippers and motor carriers direct access to a flexible and reliable fleet of trucks. And- the CDL drivers who operate them. Pierre is originally from Haiti. Shout out to all the Haitians out there. Though he grew up in Brooklyn. He graduated from City Tech and took online courses from Wagner College in supply chain logistics. He has also had previous experiences at Interstate Batteries, XPO Logistics, Performance Food Group, Linden Bulk Transportation, and Mac transport staffing. However, it doesn't stop there. He was also selected as the top 1% of 4,000 teams to participate in Quake's 2019 NYC Spring Accelerated Cohort, where he further refined and grew his startup. So please welcome to the pod, Pierre Laguerre. Oh,
1: thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it, I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited what you guys are doing here and, you know, really to highlight our story, my story. So, you know, other um, entrepreneurs or, you know, inspiring entrepreneurs and especially people in those marginalized communities, man. I think it's very important to hear my story. I used to feel somewhat ashamed of sharing my story until I've learned that I'm doing myself and my community a disservice by keeping those things to myself. So I'm really excited and I'm glad to be here with you guys, man, and being able to share my story and my journey. Thank you.
0: Thank you, thank you, brother. How, how are you feeling this morning? What's what's going
1: on, man? I always tell people this, right? I feel great, but however, I have a lot to complain about. But I'm not gonna do that because if I did, nobody cares anyway. So I just gotta get it done.
0: Mm, absolutely, brother. Hey, I, I respect that winners mentality. You know, there's no sympathy for winners, right? No, um, but 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 you you said something interesting about story, right? So so let's get into it. You come from humble beginnings. What was it like growing up in Brooklyn with a Haitian background? How How was
1: that experience? Man, to be honest with you, that experience was somewhat tough. It was a rough experience. Coming from, left Haiti when I was 15 and came here with the dream of becoming a neurologist. Um, and when I landed in Brooklyn, pretty much I called it the right inside of the apple. So I'm not sure if anyone from the third world countries or the Caribbean, when you see American TV, you don't see the hoods, right? You didn't, Nobody would ever believe America has ghettos. And when you've seen everything on TV, all you see is the beautiful building, the beautiful skyline. So for me, it was much more like cultural shock. Right. Getting into Brooklyn and thinking I'm going to live the best life and ended up right there in the heart of East Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York and early 90s. It was rough in Brooklyn. I don't know if you guys remember, but in the early 90s, you know, gang was really, really big in Brooklyn. Um, You know, drug dealing, uh, gang banging, um, seeing all of that for me, it was just kind of more of a shocker. Then it was like, well, hold up. This is not what I expected. This is not where I thought I was coming. And, you know, just being able to navigate through those communities, I think, you know, coming from Haiti and also how bad it was for Haitians around the time. So I don't know if you guys remember, you know, they used to call Haitians um, Haitian booty scratcher or they call them. Um, what's the other one? Um, B.O.D. Um, bad. I, I, I forgot what it was, but it's something Haitian odor, They used to kind of, you know, tease Haitians about. And also another one where they were talking about Haitians was responsible for bringing AIDS into the U.S. So I really came in the country when it was really, really hard to be Haitians. No one really wanted to let people know that they were Haitians, and going through high school, going through all the bully phase, and it was a really hard experience, but I think all that experience shaped me to be who I am today, seeing all those um, things that I've seen in that community, but it was also that experience that led me into trucking because the fear of becoming a statistic, the fear of becoming a product of that environment I was looking for a way to escape because I always said to myself, I did not come in this country to be a statistic. I did not come in this country to be on the news. If I'm going to be on the news, it has to be something positive. Not in a sense to where my mother has to put teddy bears or the candles on the corner because I got killed, um, God forbid. So I think it was a very, very hard experience. Uh, But now to be where I am today, I embrace it. And I would love to say, you know, if there's anyone currently living in those communities, I encourage them to really understand the importance of, you know, where you are today does not determine your final destination. Really look within, um, you know, tap in. Um, Mentorship is big, advisors is big, uh, especially for me. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to kind of expand our minds to see the world from a different lens and realize that, you know, our world does not revolve around our shitty communities. There's a lot more that this world has to offer. So it was a very hard challenge. It was tough, you know, uh, being able, you can wear, uh, wear certain colors, You know, you couldn't wear certain sneakers, even if you was Payless. Even me coming from Haiti, as you know, Haitians, their favorite store to go shop to, I don't know if the Bronx have it, is Bobby's Department Store, which is one of the cheapest stores that you can go and shop into. So when I first came into the country, that's pretty much what I was wearing, right? I was wearing the Payless shoes, and here I am thinking I was fly, because I got my little first gig at McDonald's, and I would go to Payless and get me like four or five sneakers, one shot, and... I thought I was the fly guy, but little did I know, I get to school the next day, it was nothing but jokes, right? (laughs) So I think all of that experience, like, you know, just kind of shaped me um, to be who I am, one, but it also allowed me to build a level of empathy, a level of emotional intelligence. And I think it's one most important part people don't like to talk about because it sounds too taboo is, you know, being street smart, right? And I think every entrepreneur... You know, you have to have that critical skill of being street smart because you have to be relatable. You have to be able to tap into the people, especially for the people that you're looking to serve. So I think for me, it was, um, although it was a bad experience, but by the grace of God, I was able to really take that experience and turn it into a stepping stone as opposed to allowing it to become a stopping stone in my personal life.
2: During that journey, you mentioned that you had the opportunity to serve as a trucker yourself, right? So you had the real world boots on the ground experience of seeing what that life was like now in a cnbc interview you mentioned that there's a lack of transparency between truckers and drivers uh, which ultimately led you to create fleeting when you were in that experience where did you believe this lack of transparency stemmed from
1: i think um the lack of, experience of transparency really comes from of the way that traditionally trucking operates, right? Trucking is still stuck in the 80s or 70s, I would say. And this is one of by far the only industries that's really stuck that much, you know, and it's such an old way of operating. Trucking is very outdated, it is very antiquated, very fragmented. So I think for me being a driver, I think once working for a trucking company, I had the experience myself first on working with XPO Logistics, understanding the ins and out and understanding operation. Then when I went to Performance Food Group, you know, I started doing um, food delivery. So with XPO, you only had like a BOL, which is bill of lading, the paper you sign the freight. But working for Performance Food Group, I was delivering food products to local restaurants and hospitals. And there was times that I would go on a route with, you know, 1,400 cases to deliver by hand, put in a shop whether I'm bringing it to a basement or pull them up the stairs. And I was just making about three to $400 per day on those routes, right? Although if three to $400 a day is good money, I was making about 93K a year. But when you look at the invoices, of what I was delivering on behalf of that company. We're talking about $250,000 invoices for the day. And I'm like, wait, hold up. I'm only making $400 out of that. And I'm actually breaking my back. Like I'm doing all the work. First, I have to worry about mental, you know, um, my mental state, being on the road and driving, especially driving through Brooklyn, New York, driving an 18-wheeler. It's not a joke, right? So you're talking about traffic. You're talking about crazy drivers. So seeing all of that and I'm like, wait, hold up. How am I driving this truck doing all this hard work? But this company's making you know hundreds of millions of dollars. At the time, that was a twelve billion dollar company, and I was like, "Wow, this is not right." And I think from doing deliveries in my college, I think ran into my professor one day, and because I was ashamed about it and didn't want to be seen, and he was like, "Man, what's the matter? Why are you hiding?" I said, "Well, you know, I dropped out of college to become a trucker. They didn't want to look like a loser." And he was like, "Well, how much are you making a year?" And at the time, I was doing about ninety-three k a year. And he was like, man, look, half of these kids is going to graduate and they're not going to see 93K a year. So I want you to own it and be proudful and be the best trucker you can be. And that kind of led me into kind of becoming the owner-operator and purchase my own truck. When I purchased my own truck, that's when I started really learning the ins and outs of trucking, right? So it's not just about just driving a truck. You really have to understand your unit economics. You really have to understand how to build a relationship with your broker partners and shipper partners. So for me, I felt like I wasn't really getting the values that I was getting just being owner-operator. So I went to Wagner College and took a course in supply chain logistics, and then again, that exposed me more to trucking on a a macro level, but I was eager to still learn more on a micro level, so I went again and took the course to become a freight broker. Now, in freight broker school, that's when I realized the lack of transparency that we're talking about right now is that, you know, and this is not to vilify freight brokers, right? In trucking, you're going to have bad players on every sector, right? There's bad drivers, there's bad carriers, there's bad shippers, and there's definitely bad brokers. And I think through that school, what I've learned was that, you know, brokers make money on truckers' ignorance, right? Truckers don't understand you in economics, they don't understand how to build relationships relationship with shippers, and they don't understand how to build or run their businesses efficiently. Trucking is really hard. So I think for me, seen all of that and was exposed to it and then kind of look at the driver market, there's 4 million truckers in the U.S. and one of the biggest challenges that truckers have is financial literacy, right, and and then don't understand their numbers, they don't understand how to operate their businesses, you know, in a way that will kind of lead them to being successful, so I think that's where I saw the lack of transparency there, the lack of communication, Because he was like, okay, well, the people that are making money, the people that's actually calling the shots, they're not on the road, you know, 250 nights away from their family. They're not on the road sleeping on the shoulder. They're not on the road eating garbage. But the bottom guy that's doing all the work wasn't really getting the reward that he deserves. So I think that lack of transparency is what creating the problem that we're seeing today. There's a, we currently right now, there's a 900,000 driver shortage. And I think that has a lot to do with it because trucking does not provide upward mobility. You start as a driver, you die as a trucker. So there's no way to really move up to become at least a fleet owner or logistics personnel or at least own a warehouse. So I think that those experience kind of shape me to think and not to think and to believe that, you know, I can build fleeting, where it's, it's outside of just leveraging technology to give shippers and carriers access to communicate freely with each other, but also educational tools to allow drivers to make better decisions for their businesses. So once again it's not to say that those other industries wouldn't want to train and educate drivers is once again trucking is like the best way i can explain trucking is like in operation is like you walking around with a fine sticker in your hand right you constantly have to put out fires right so i think trucking companies don't have time to train drivers on financial literacy no all they're worrying about is that bottom line hurry up get in this truck and go do this load so i can make my money same thing with a shipper the shipper is not worrying about educating drivers on you know, how to work with them. All the shipper cares about is, is, look, making sure that my goods get picked up on time and make sure you get delivered damage free at a course that I can afford. So same thing with a broker it's like, hey, look, I got so much customers that I made promises to, you know I don't have time to educate truckers. So when you take that all together, it's not to say that nobody really cares, although sometimes they feel like that. I just think that you know, everybody's usually just so deep head down with their own challenges. Just don't have the opportunity to train truckers on the do's and don't but however they capitalize off that ignorance so i think you know this is why it's important to talk about the transparency and let drivers see what's really happening in trucking and expose to drivers not just their challenges but also the other sectors and the challenges that they're having because i believe that will allow drivers to build a level of empathy where they can understand their customers although trucking companies or shippers may not yet ready to take that approach because i think everybody has commoditized truckers they don't look at they don't look at the driver as a valuable partner. So I think by bringing that level of transparency, bringing that level of education, truckers can start feeling a different way about themselves. They can at least now feel proud of what they're doing and at least feel like they're part of society and committing to society.
0: Now, following up on that same topic on truckers and even in that same interview, uh, it was stated that the average annual turnover rate for long haul truckers is over 90%. And the average trucker age is fifty-five years old. Yes, right. And there's a need for nine hundred k more drivers, according to industry reports. Um, how do you plan to recruit? Because, uh, because in that same interview, you were saying that, like, you know, you definitely plan to 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 work on initi- a mission or initiative to recruit more drivers. Who are younger, right? And retain them as well. So, so what could you speak about your plan or your initiative on how you plan to uh recruit and retain those young truck drivers and what incentives you may provide to keep them as well?
1: Yep, absolutely. So um, great question, too, by the way. And um, like you said, you know, the average age of a truck driver is 54 years old. They're retiring at a long rate, number one. And if you look at um, you know, social media as well. And that's something that we got to talk about social media has desensitized trucking and have everybody believe that hey look it's easy you can make a million dollars by taking this course you don't have to have a cdl you don't have to become a driver so i think if you take all of that and you bundle it together it creates a bigger mess in trucking but before we can talk about hey look let's make this place a better place for truckers or at least start thinking about bringing the next generation of drivers. Me personally, we believe that we have to destigmatize trucking. So trucking has a lot of stigmas that's associated with it, right? Like you said, average age of a truck driver is usually 54-year-old white man or white male. And, you know, um, their quality of life is horrible. Um, Truckers are spending 250 nights away from their family. Um, The food option is horrible. So you ask yourself, you know, um, one of seven drivers, I believe, have um, obesity, Um, you know, drivers have a life expectancy of 16 years less than any other industry. So if you take all of that, you combine it, you have to ask yourself, who the hell would want to be a trucker? Because when you being a trucker, you asking the driver to give up his social life, give up spending time with his family, give up eating healthy foods and giving up, you know, sleeping on his bed. So and I think that all of that contributes to the driver shortage that we're seeing today. But for us, before we can say, hey, look, let's bring the next generation of truckers. We have to destigmatize trucking first. How do we dis- destigmatize trucking? Well, first, we know that Traditionally, a trucker, like, you know, a long haul trucker, they'll be on the road for 30, 45 days. They have zero control of their schedule. They have zero control of their earning. Hey, look, we need you to go over there. You're going to be over there for 30 days. I don't care if yeah, 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 your anniversary is coming next week. That's not my problem. Your sun soccer game coming. That's not my problem. I need those freight deliveries. So the drivers have zero control of their schedule and zero control of their lives. So what we're seeing happening is these truckers are living, um, leaving the industry to go do gig economy. Those are the drivers that's gonna go and drive Uber. And I tell people all the time, why would I be a trucker in today's age when I could just drive Uber in my car and make a thousand dollars a week and sleep in my bed every day and see my kids every day, right? So all of that is contributing factors that's creating the shortage in trucking. So for us, before we think about bringing in the next gen, is, okay, let's remove those stigmas. Let's remove those roadblocks, right? How do we create a system where drivers can feel empowered, they can feel educated, they can feel like they have the tools to be successful? How do we create upward mobility within our network? Instead of coming up and starting as a driver and die as a driver, how do we teach that driver financial literacy to understand how to become a fleet owner himself so where, you know, after five, six years of driving, he might just say, you know what, driving is not for me no more, but I own 10 trucks that's running for me because we also partner with those drivers to help them manage their trucks. So that's the approach that we're taking. First, destigmatize trucking, let's remove all the barriers so we can start attracting the new talent because the new generations that we have today, it's not just money that they care about, they care about culture, right? So I think if we can kind of really tag with trucking in a sense to where we create a new culture, where we have drivers have a sense of pride, have the buy-in from the community, from the country saying, hey, look, you know, people praise truckers every day, but in a sense, it's like it sounds fake, like 74% of everything that we touch in this country is moved by truckers. If trucking stops in three days, we'll live in a complete waste. We'll be li- like we'll see a complete anarchy in this country, right? So I think it's not just saying that the drivers are the backbone of this economy, but actually giving them the tools to feel proud, to feel good about what they're doing, knowing that they're contributing to our society. So I think that's the approach that we're taking to start um, bringing the new drivers into the industry, where you're not just coming here to drive a truck and be away from your family but you have the tools, you have the power to control your schedule, control your earning. If you wanna work three days and take four days off without nobody being on your back, that's us. If you wanna work a week and then you wanna take another week off because you wanna spend time with your family, that's what we allow of, um, in our platform. But that's the thing that most trucking companies cannot do. Trucking is a very hard business. Um, profit margin are traditionally slim. So I think for us by leveraging technology and connecting the dots, allow us to pay our drivers a lot better and create a better ecosystem for them.
2: So, So would you say then, that the future of fleeting is going to involve solutions where you can provide this natural level of progression, right? So there's a, there's a formal career path, similar to what you were saying, right? So initially you come in, you're a CDL driver, maybe you don't you're, you're still a little hazy on the business, but you can go through the fleeting academy, for example, to complete some of those online courses that you were talking about, gain some more exposure, understand those management principles, and then continue to progress in your journey with the company and have that better quality of life. Would you say those are are some of the components
1: that you and your team are thinking through? absolutely that's definitely what we're thinking about but another step we'll take this another step further instead of making it look like a course our goal is to gamify it right to have the drivers buy in. at the end of the day we don't want them to feel like another task that they have to do right but at the end of the day if they're on the road every day after each complete a load or you know we know that this driver is about to take his 10 hour rest you know we can send them four or five questions you know um let them see how he answered those questions if you got them right you know, we reward that driver, whether it's points, whether it's employee of the month or whether it's like, hey, look, lunch is on us. I think those things is like kind of gamified and have truckers give them the tools to really educate themselves and understand what is it that they need to do. And even if they start to no longer be part of the fleeting network, that's not what we want. We want to always retain our drivers. It's all about building a community. But I think they'll have enough tools, they'll have enough information to where they can go and be the best version of themselves as well.
2: So continuing to follow up there, fleeting has is, is progressed has progressed in a number of different times, first from the Spring Accelerator at Quake, and, and now with raising considerable sums of capital to bring all of this to reality. So first and foremost, congrats on raising over $3 million for Fleeting, which is which is currently in its seed stage. How was it to receive an investment from NBA All-Star Kyrie Irving's CHI 11 Consulting Group and Lockstep Ventures, and can you walk us through the process of how that came about? Because this was this was a significant moment.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, before I even tap into that, I'm gonna just few uh, few mind. I'll tap into quick capital real quick. So prior to me getting into the tech space, remember, I um, spent um, almost 15, 14 years in the transportation space, and didn't know anything about raising venture capital. They didn't know anything about building tech. So um, I didn't really tell you guys my story. But um, after I had got injured. And I was injured from, a attack, um, from, from an booty attack from for an attempt carjack and robbery in Brooklyn. And while I was running my two companies, and when I got hurt, I wanted to build Fleeton because I saw other companies like Uber Freight, Convoy, that was building great technology tools and trucking, but I didn't see none of them that was building something that speaks to the driver challenges. So that's how Fleeton was born. And you know, kind of going to the you know pitch competition, pitching investors, didn't know what the hell I was doing, they didn't know how to answer the questions. I was making the fool out of myself all the time. And it was a real challenge. And when we got accepted into um, Quick Capital, Quick Capital totally changed our trajectory because you know what a, a Quick Capital is—it's a tech accelerator. It's like you know getting your MBA in three months, but in tech, where you have to really understand how to negotiate with investors, how do you raise capital? You know, valuation, understand you know how to build a team, how to scale a company, how to put yourself in a position to win. So I think Quick Capital really did an amazing job at really showing me those tools and kind of helping me navigate that um that land. But it was really tough in the beginning raising venture capital, going to pitch competition. I mean, I have hundreds of no's. So if anyone is listening, um, I just want people to understand is like you know, sometime when you're raising capital, you may have to go through a thousand no's to get that first yes, right? And that's just the nature of the game. It's a numbers game because you got investors. The investors don't just invest in you just by having the first conversation. They want to know who you are. They want to know the market size. They want to know the market opportunity, where they're going to cash out their money. Who are you? Why are you the best person to build this product? So kind of going through all of that, you know, learned a lot, then got to Quake, Quick was the very first investor that we got there um, invested $300,000 and at the time it was just an idea on the napkin and really kind of give us the tool to launch our MVP in July 2019. And also raise um, from other angels like Arlen Hamilton, um, Chameleon, um, E-40, uh, also you then became a first black man that raised over a million dollars on a crowdfunding platform such as Republic And then to now, when we're talking about, you know, the Lockstep and Kyrie investment, and I think what was important about this conversation was um, one of the um, managers, uh, partners at Lockstep Ventures, Marcus Glover. Shout out to Marcus. And me and Marcus, we have met three years prior um, about fleeting and at the time, you know, trying to get investment from Marcus. Marcus was working on multiple things. He was sitting on the board at the Five Ventures which is a company that helped formerly incarcerated men and women kind of regain entry back into society. And Marcus became a great mentor. He didn't invest right then and there, but Marcus really kept in touch, really understood where we was going, understand progress. And he was also, like I said, a great mentor, a great supporter as well. Marcus was somebody that could reach out for um, you know for anything, any challenges. And I think every last one of us need one of those, um, how you call it, those giants to stand on their shoulders. So Marcus was there. So after George Floyd's death, Marcus and a few other partners, Bonin um, and uh, Michael Loeb from um, the Lowe family in NYC, they felt like they had a moral obligation to do more for minority founders because they understand that, you know, the statistics will show you out of billions of dollars that's being invested annually into the tech startup, you know, only 2% of that was going to minority founders. And a lot of VC firms felt like, okay, well, we have to do our social part here. We have to really step up and do better. And that's how Lockstep Ventures were born and marcus really tapped me in and said hey look man we've got a new fund that we're working on i love what you guys are doing we definitely love to talk further into the an investment and not only that but he's like also by the way somebody else been hearing about your company which is Kyrie Irving, and they're saying they love what you're doing and come to find out Kyrie's family also um been in the supply chain logistics space as well so he got a family of truckers so he's understanding what is it that we're trying to solve so he said hey look man definitely would love to kind of help you know the fleeting team and you know, I love their mission. Being able to kind of create a system to the way they want to empower formerly uh, formerly incarcerated men and women in obtaining the CDL and become truckers and become entrepreneurs. Marcus and um, and Kyrie Irving saw that as a huge social impact because that's something that they're really stand for. Um, if you look at it, it's about 250,000 inmates are being free to the street annually but they don't have an ecosystem that can help them with housing and employment and not out of 10, they reoffend, end up right back into the system again. So that's sort as an opportunity you so, say, okay, well, how can we have a shortage of drivers? You talk about 900,000 driver shortage, but here we are, we have this issue of 250,000 formerly incarcerated men and women being free annually, but don't have nowhere to go. And I think all of that came together as the mission to say, okay, well, we need to get beyond fleeting. We need to support this company because this company has the ability to not only want to change supply chain logistics on a macro level, but also being able to go back to those marginalized communities and create opportunities. So that's where the relationship came from. That's so what we were doing and the investment came in and outside of the investment was another thing that I must point is that the values that we get from the lockstep team, the car um, 11 team, the type of support, it's those support that you don't get from every VC firm, right? Every VC firm, sometimes you'll get money, here's $100,000 or here's a million dollars, you go figure it out. But I think with the lockstep and the Kyrie 11 team, their approach is much more hands on where they'll roll up their sleeves themselves and say, okay, hey, look, what is it that we need to tackle to make sure we start focusing on scale? So they actually provided an additional million dollars of free share services that we can tap into, whether it's for HR, whether it's for engineering, whether it's for marketing, all of those things is very helpful. But that really kind of helped us foster a better relationship. They understand the mission. They understand what we're trying to do. It's not a, how can I put it? This is not a race. This is a marathon. We want to make sure that we understand what we're building. And I think having them as a support um, system is really, really important. And I think every founders should definitely look to have those giants in their network because a lot of time those giants allow you to sit on their shoulder and you can see the forest from a different angle. So I think that was really, really good team, good people to have. So I really appreciate it.
0: Now, that was that was amazing. You dropped a lot there. And, it, and it's so much to unpack. And I know that Steph is is going to um, dive a bit deeper on the, on the formerly incarcerated because we, we did do our due diligence and we are a fan of that mission as well. Um, uh, and I can speak personally for myself in that I know a couple of bros, as you said, like grew up watching the drug dealers and, and people on the corner, um, those were, and the gangsters, those were the role models, right? And I, I know people that were incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. Um, but we want to touch up on something interesting here. And uh, because we also noticed, and you alluded to this as well in that, you were the first Black slash first Haitian to raise um, 1.7 mil uh, max in all Reg CF platforms. Dive a bit deeper on that and, and, and talk about how did that feel? What was that experience? You always talk about paying it forward. Like What did that mean for you? And um, what do you think that not only that, but like the whole SEC rule, Mm-hmm. and how they expanded the maximum amount to $5 and what you could raise on crowdfunding platforms. Talk about that and what that means for founders, specifically Black founders moving forward. Would that be the new way to, to raise capital versus like a family and friends round? Like, I kind of want to hear from from you on that.
1: Yeah, man, oh man, that's a great question, also,
0: man. And, 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 and another question. I want to go a step further, right? Like, what is it like raising? And we talk about a bit about this on offline where black founders have to be sharp when they step into these boardroom meetings and when they're raising capital. Talk about that experience or the art of fundraising. Like, like what did that like you going through the fire, you getting it out the mud, transitioning from a founder to CEO? Like talk about all of that. What was that experience like?
1: Man, that experience, I would tell you like this, right? I have a love and hate relationship with that experience. And uh, what I mean by that is because one, like, you know, anytime you're the first person of anything, that comes with a lot of pressure. That's number one, right? Because now the whole world is looking like, okay, well, let me see what you do now. You understand? You're the first person with this, or they're also expecting to be the first company, probably to be a mega company as well. So there's a there's a lot of higher expectation when you become the first person of anything. Now, but when we talk about fundraising, man, fundraising is something that I always tell people. I don't wish fundraising on my worst enemies. Right? This is not a fun process. It's very brutal. It's um it takes a lot. It requires a lot of phone call. It requires um mental toughness. It requires tough skin. Because, you know, you're going to have rude investors that probably hear you pitching in the first five minutes and says, ah, no, no I'm good, I'll pass, right? Just kind of cut you off and I'm like, I don't want to hear no more, like, this is not my thesis. I don't want to invest. Like, so all of that, like, in a sense, so if I say that, you know, fundraising did not affect me emotionally and mentally in a way, I'll be lying because a lot of times you feel like you're less than. A lot of times you feel like, okay, well, is it because of my background? Is it because I don't have an Ivy League background? I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Harvard. Because if you look at the people that's getting investment, that's usually their background. those are the people that go to the ivy league schools. you know that's you know that's really getting on the capital, but somebody like me is this is like you know okay, well, this is not the traditional founders that we know of. We talk about a trucker, like you understand, and of course, there's this bad stigma again that come with being a trucker we loud we curse all the time you know we smell like cigarettes we smell like tobacco so it's like kind of being a trucker to now being with a suit and going into this pitching room it was a life-changing event for me but i think for me i, I was always i always had that emotional intelligence to understand that number one as a black man you've always had to look 10 times sharper than your competition right is that just the nature of it where um i see white founders walking room with shorts on laptop in the hand a pepsi in the hand and raise 10 million dollars like this right me, I have to make sure that my suit fit, it's not a baggy pants, my, my, my blazer's not baggy, you know, my shirt is right, my, 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 um, my tie is right, make sure I speak the, their language. That's another thing, too, you have to understand and speak their language and understand, you know, what is it that you're selling in order for you to get the investors to buy. And so I think all of that really create a lot more pressure because I think when it comes to Black founders, we have to go the extra mile. And prove ourselves that we're worthy of that investment. That's just the nature of the game. I'm not saying it's right, but hopefully, you know, change will come. But I think going through all that experience of raising capital, then, you know, crowdfunding was just really kind of like it existed, but you didn't really hear much about crowdfunding like this. And another great tool about crowdfunding is that. When I talk about me going into these rooms and pitching, nine out of 10, it's an investor that already has multiple exits, right? That already exits, you know, that have multiple investments. So it's another part of why the rich keep getting richer and the poor stay behind the curve because those investors have access to that room. They're labeled as an accredited investor. They're making over $250,000 a year, or at least have a half a million dollars in liquid cash. And if you think about that, it's not too many people in our communities can become a VC or can become an angel investor because how many people do we know that's making $250,000 a year living in the Bronx that we can look up to? How many people we know making that type of money living in Brooklyn that we can look up to saying they're an angel investor? So which, once- which,
0: which why it, it looks crazy if you try to raise a family and friends around and all family and friends don't, 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 don't got it. They, they come from nothing.
1: But not even that, but the lack of education and investment as well. It's like, man, imagine you raised $10,000 from friends and family today. Next week, they want to know, hey, how did my investment do? Um, did, did my shares go up? Am I going to get my money? Like, they just don't understand it, right? So they'll give me that $10,000 and it becomes a problem. But the real VCs, they understand, well, they give you this money. They don't, they're looking for the next 10 years for their return. 10, seven years they're looking for the return, but you once you're talking about our community once again, we don't understand investment, you know we're thinking about hey, look, I'm gonna put ten thousand dollars here today next week, I better have thirty 000, forty thousand dollars or well you just you just took over took over my money right then it becomes a problem, so that's another thing I think you know educating um our community about investment, and I think that's exactly what crowdfunding really did, so crowdfunding um for me was I looked at it as wow this is a real opportunity that allow anyone anyone from any walks of life to say hey look i can afford to make a two thousand dollar investment into a company i couldn't afford to make a five thousand dollar investment and why is that important let me just stress out one point real quick i know investors that invested five thousand dollars in uber right when uber first came out and when uber went ipo it made 25 million dollars on a five thousand dollar investment right so just think about that again how many times we blow five grand going out to a bar, like a group of us going on group vacations, like we blow five grand almost every weekend. If you think you put all your five, 10 friends together and you add up how much money you spent on going out and eating and drink, we blew five grand. So that's five grand that, you know, our community could have put behind something of investing. But once again, we're not educated on those things. We don't know about those things. We didn't know that those things exist. So once I find about Republic and the reason why we went through was crowdfunding. Not to say that yes, we it was always a challenge raising venture um capital. So for me, I didn't go to crowdfunding because I couldn't raise capital from investors. Because I did raise capital from investors, but the value that I saw in it was the opportunity to allow truckers to become shareholders in a company. So I said to myself, well, okay, well, if I'm allowed to do a crowdfunding, I know shooters, I know trucking companies, I know drivers that want to invest into this company, but they may not have. A check size that I'm looking for, right? If I'm looking for a minimum check size of 50K. Ain't no trucker is going to write me a check for 50K, right? Most trucking companies may not be able to write me 50K. But I said, well, if I do a crowdfunding, you know, that could put a minimum of $100 then I could get every trucker to buy and every trucker can spend $100 in investment. So that's why we did the crowdfunding. My purpose, I wanted drivers to become shareholders in the company because we believe that this company would not be successful without the help and support from truckers. So I wanted the drivers to have a buy-in. I wanted them to feel like they're part of the company so that's why we launched the crowdfunding. And I think being successful at it, and I think there's a lot of other black founders that's on crowdfunding right now that may not have been able to reach the milestone that I've reached. And I just wanna say this, I think the best approach that I took, it wasn't going to tell everybody, hey, go invest in my company, go invest in fleeting. One, it was kind of taking an educational approach, letting my community know, hey, do you know that you can invest $100 into a company? You know, you can invest $1,000 into this company and kind of hold on for the next five to 10 years for that company to get acquired by a bigger company or go IPO, you can make a large return on that simple, you know, hundred. I mean, you know, a hundred dollar investment. We're not talking about where you're going to make enough. You're not going to, I'm not telling you that you're going to have fuck your money from a hundred dollar investment, but you're going to have something. But if you want to get to the fuck your money, you know, you're probably going to have to get to the 5,000, $10,000 investment. But I think it was still an eye opener to allow people to understand the power of investing and not only the power of investing, but the power of investing in early emerging tech companies, because tech is one of the only industries that you can see that turn people into billionaires overnight. And when I say overnight, I'm talking about a 10-year journey, right? You look at the founders of Uber, founders of Airbnb, Stripe, all these people, they publicly traded, all these guys are billionaires, right? So tech is the, one of the only industries that I've seen that allow people to become billionaires overnight. And I think it was very important to educate that to my community, to understand how important it is. The $100 that you was going to blow on a pier, Jordan, you can now go on crowdfunding and find other tech companies and put that $100 there. You know? So like me, like I invest at least $500 every week into like new companies that I'm seeing coming into this space. I don't have to go put a whole load of money, but every company, especially if they're um, led by Black founders, I go in those companies and support. So I think it was um, that crowdfunding really, really helped understand and navigate the, the lay of the land. But to answer the question, yes, I do believe that is going to be the norm because there is still a big, barrier between founders and investors, especially black founders. You know, there's that lack of empathy. There's the lack of understanding our community, where we're from, what is it that we're trying to do? And too often, you know, like I said, when we see those investors that don't look like us, they don't understand what is it that we're trying to solve because they don't live in our community. They're they're not us. So it's very hard for them to get the buy-in. So this is why it's very important to have investors that look like us, to have investors that come from the same community as us, to understand that, well, if you live in South Bronx, Joe Schmo from Silicon Valley is not going to come in the middle of South Bronx to solve an issue that's in South Bronx. You live there. You see the problem every day. You now have the competitive edge to actually, you know, create a solution around that problem. But you just have to learn how to communicate it to the investors that will invest in the company. But now let's take this a step further. What if that investor grew up in South Bronx himself, right? And he was a black VC or whatever, Hispanic VC, and saw all those challenges in the South Bronx. So when you come and pitch him about this solution that you're building for the people that live in that community, that investor will relate to you a lot better. That investor will understand what it is that you're trying to build, as opposed to looking at you as an outsider, like, okay, well, do I trust this person? Do I want to give this person my money? Do, I really, do they really know what they're solving? I think that investor will have a buy-in into your product because simply they can relate to you. So I think that's why it's very important for people like myself, you know, it, the pressure is not to, once again, to be successful in building a great company to bring share um, a return to our shareholders. But I think it's very important to understand the lay of the land, to understand that entire ecosystem to now be able to become a VC where I can go back to those communities and actually start investing into these new ideas. So. But definitely, I think, you know, crowdfunding is definitely the new tools um, with SEC raising a bar from uh, max 1 million. Um, even us, we, by the grace of God, that at least we have that option in our back pocket. So we still kind of holding on as the last option. Worst come the worst. But I still think that even if I, when I do uh, my series A round, I'm still going to go back to crowdfunding and give our early investors another opportunity. To reinvest to maintain control of this issue.
0: That was all you, you. You touched on it all, brother. I I really appreciate that, man. Um, uh, I, I will. I guess one other thing before Steph dives in, um, talk about your experience with fleeting in COVID, right? Like, like what what was what was that experience like? And in, and in, uh, I'm sure that you received. And overwhelming amount of support, given the fact of COVID, Black Lives Matter, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, like, like what was that that experience? And even dive into a bit of like the startup metrics that they, or the key metrics that fleeting focuses on to attract some of those investors.
1: Man, that, uh, man that was a good question. and I think that those last year was a hard moment for every, black Af- for every African-American without a doubt. Mentally, I think we all have been affected by that situation somehow some way. And um, for us, one thing I think on a on business side, it was tough. It was really, really tough. A lot of companies was going out of business. Although trucking was the only thing moving, but it wasn't every trucking companies that had activities, right? Only companies that was moving essential goods, you know, it's quality trees, beverages, and food. Those companies were had activities, but other shippers and other trucking companies, they had to come to a complete stop, right? Truckers was really losing their job. Like, you know, trucking companies was really going out of business. As a matter of fact, prior to COVID, there was about, I believe, 700 companies went out of business. And in the midst of COVID, an additional 600 trucking companies went out of business. And we're talking about 600 trucking companies, not your average small and pop trucking companies. We're talking about trucking companies with over 300, 400 um, trucks, right, that are going out of business. So that's a big dent that has created in the trucking space. But also, I think that experience also kind of forced us to kind of pivot, I would say, in a sense, right? Because what we learned was we ended up building a great pool of supply of drivers but there was no customers to send them to. There was no trucking companies to send them to. And that was much more like an educational moment for us to really kind of zoom out and really look at the real opportunities and the real challenge in trucking. And I think what they, the data was telling us was that way. We may not have enough trucking companies to send our drivers, but COVID, what COVID did he exposed to the American people, the opportunity that exists in trucking. So everybody and their mother was trying to buy a truck and trying to treat it as an investment um, vehicle. And we saw that as an opportunity, um, as much as chaotic it was, we saw it as an opportunity because those people that was buying trucks, one, they was buying it because they took an online course and somebody told them, go buy a truck and you can make money on it. So they end up purchasing these expensive equipment. Now, the equipment is sitting in front of their yard. They still have to pay insurance. They still have to pay truck note and the truck is sitting down. And at the same token, we had a pool of drivers that was looking for work. So that kind of allowed us to, it forced our hand to pivot in a sense to so where we are now, the Airbnb of trucking. And what we do is we take trucks from regular individuals that don't know how to manage their trucks, or we take trucks from small trucking companies, we all put them together. And what we do now is, let's say, you know, Stefan, you own a truck, call it Stefan truck in LLC, and you can't find the drivers, and you're paying a truck note, you're paying the insurance. So what we do is you register that truck onto us, once you register that truck, that truck serves as inventory to a driver. Now a driver can come, book that truck, whether he's booking it for three days or he's booking it for four days. Now a driver can book that truck for three days, We give him access to lane, so now that driver has a little bit more control of his schedule, he has a little bit more control of his earnings. So let's say if he booked the truck on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, he say, hey, look, Thursday through Sunday, I have family um, needs, I can not be on the road. He'll return that truck on Wednesday, well, guess what? On Thursday, there'll be a driver that said, man, I'm available to work Thursday or Friday because I can't work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So another driver will book that truck and go ahead and get lanes. So one of the metrics that we really track for our business success when we talk about investors is definitely truck utilization, right? 40% of the time, uh, I mean, in trucking, if you look at it, a truck is only being utilized only 40% of the time. The other 60%, the truck is just sitting down right so for us is our metrics is truck utilization one and being able to kind of connect drivers directly with shippers and broker partners that allow them to create a better schedule and also that allow us to have better churn on our drivers so those metrics are key when it comes to speak, uh, speak with investors like every trucking companies will tell you that they have a um, challenge of finding drivers or retaining drivers well for us here to be honest with you guys we have a waiting list of drivers Ready to become part of this network, right? Simply because of the flexibility that we provide, simply because we allow them to make decisions on their own. They operate like an own operator without actually having to put 20, 50K down to go purchase a truck themselves. So the drivers have the flexibility to do that. And I think that's really kind of, you know, help um, with the story of being able to pitch investors. But also, that's another thing about being a founder, right? A founder, you might come to the industry or you might come with an idea saying, this is what I want to build right? That's your own take on what you think the problem is. But once you really start building and really go to market, your job is to really sit down and pay attention to the data. What is the data telling you? Yeah, I know you came with this first idea and said you was going to do this, but the market is telling you something totally different. So you as a leader, you have to be able to kind of take that data, process that data and be able to pivot and move in a sense to where, you know, one, you don't run out of capital, which is the number one job of a startup, is to never run out of capital because you run out of capital, pretty much the fuel is done. Right, And it'll be hard again to raise money from investors once you run out of capital and not being able to hit your milestone and metrics. So I think that was very important for us. It was an eye-opener. We was really um, taking a lot of hit in 2020, as far as, like I said, the trucking companies went out of business, a lot of drivers were sitting down. And, you know, once again, by us really creating this new feature slash pivot, it'll allow us to kind of revamp um, our business model. Like for example, in twenty twenty 2019, we did only 500K in revenue. Um, 2020, we was able to 3X and did 1.6 million. In 2021, with our new features, we already surpassed what we did in 2020 already, right? So we still have the rest of the year left to really kind of keep growing our business. So I think the ability to kind of look at the problem from a different standpoint and say, okay, well, maybe this right here is not working the way we anticipated to work. Maybe our thesis probably kind of has some holes in it. What is it that we need to do? So I think being able to pay attention to those details allow us to truly see the market for what it was and actually be a data-driven company to where, okay, we're letting the data help us make the decision to be where we are today. And I think all of that creates a better story when you're talking to the investors because that's what investors want it's all about storytelling when you're raising them um, uh, around it's all about how you tell a story and people have to understand when you're pitching investors you don't pitch from where you are today you want to pitch them for what you're going to be 10 years down the line right and it's not inflating your numbers it's not about lying. it's about being showing that you're a visionary you can show like hey look this is where we are today if we execute on this initiative right and we're doing well and our missions align 10 years. Yes, without a doubt, we can be a multi-billion dollar company. And I think it's just a way of how you communicate that story to investors to get the buy Because investors don't invest in product, they invest in people. So you have to be able to sell yourself and your vision to the investors for them to believe in it. One key
2: theme that struck, uh, or one key theme that was present throughout that narrative was the importance of providing meaningful employment such that, the individual that's operating these trucks feels like they have a certain level of agency, right? Like they're defining their destiny, they're, they're creating their schedules, um, and it's making the quality, quality of life um, better for them, such that the act of completing their, their role, being engaged in their career isn't a burden, right? Uh, so taking that same frame of thought, what has been the process for allowing individuals that have come from the uh, prison system to have meaningful employment, to come back into the workplace um, and be given a second chance, right? I understand that you're very much committed to this goal. You're committed to this population. Uh, What is the work that fleeting is doing to provide these individuals the opportunity to get their CDL uh, and become working class citizens?
1: Yes, uh, man, absolutely. I think Three months prior to everyone, like, like every image or, you know, they'll know that they have, they'll have they be released in three months. And our goal, what we want to do is right before release, like we want to send them the curriculum to start studying to get their permit for their CDL. So, obtaining the CDL is just like obtaining your regular driver's license, right? First, you have to kind of, you know, study the manuals, then go and take the written test to get your permit. After you get the permit, then you have to do some driving courses and then go for the road test. So, it's the same process when it comes to obtaining a CDL it's just a bigger vehicle. right? So I think for us is you know, prior to release, they have access to the curriculum where they can start studying the manuals to obtain their permits. Once they're released, now the first thing they do, we, we're in the process of partnering with a company called Free World. And Free World is another um, organization that helped formerly incarcerated as well pay for their CDL school. But one of the values that we see that Free World does is a lot of time people don't understand when somebody come out of prison, that don't have birth certificate, they don't have social security, they don't have IDs. So this is why it's very hard for them to find employment. So working with freeware kind of help those individuals kind of obtain those documents and when they get them, the first thing we do is set them up and go to DMV to take the written test to obtain the permit. Now once they obtain the permit, they're going to go through our training program and our training program is just not just coming into a classroom and learn about trucking, it's hands-on training. We will pair them with other truckers. In our network to go on the road to build that confidence to build that um, personal touch that relationship that you need to have that respect that you need to have that pride that you need to have as drivers because I know that's a question that comes up all the time. It's like okay, well isn't this going to be crazy that you're just taking somebody out of jail and put them on the truck? Like, you know, what is the person's background? What kind of crime they committed? And those are those things that we still have to be very careful about, right? So when we talk about formerly incarcerated men and women, I don't want to give this world this idea that any formerly incarcerated men and women are welcome into our program, right? So we're talking about, you know, young men that have been, you know, convicted of drug charge, not, you know, not violent crimes in a sense to where it's like, you know, you know, if, Throw football numbers at these guys, and you know they didn't kill nobody. But however, you know selling drugs had a bad consequences to it. So I think just looking into like those nature of crimes, what those people committed, and even some that have committed, you know, violent crime. How long ago did that violent crime committed? What is? What have you learned? then it's then before we actually can put you into a unit that's 80,000 pounds that we have to, one, worry about your safety, and we still have to worry about the public safety at large. So for us, it's not just take any formerly incarcerated and just give them a CDL and put them beyond a the will, but I think it's just much more that educational process, really understanding how the really you treat back into society, understand how you build relationship, how you can be respectful, how you can have a sense of pride in what you do. But one thing I've learned is that formerly incarcerated men are very loyal. So I think for us, it's just kind of creating those Ecosystem to where they're not just learning it from a classroom, but they're actually learning it from another trucker that's actually doing it and passing down the knowledge to them.
0: So we know, brother, that you know you you are a good man. You know, got a heart care for care for the community and also care for paying it forward. Let's let's get a bit personal here. How is it being a father and a full-time founder?
1: Man, so it's not just even being a father. Um, I do have three beautiful children that I love. And my last son, Julian, he was born with Down syndrome. So it's not just being a father, but being a father to a special need son while being a founder is, once again, it's something that I would not wish on my worst enemies. But I think my son was able to kind of move me in ways that I cannot imagine. So I was self explaining to you guys in 2017, when my son was born, he was born with Down syndrome, and that kind of impacted my two businesses that I was running at the time, which I didn't get to tell y'all that my story was, you know, I built a staffing agency to 2.5 million in revenue under 18 months and also built a trucking company and scaled that from 1.7 million in revenue in the first year. And I did all of that from cleaning windows, guys, which is another part of my story that you guys don't know, but from cleaning windows to go in and build those companies in trucking when my son was born with Down syndrome, that impacted me. So much. It impacted me financially, emotionally, mentally. I just couldn't wrap the idea around my head like, God, why I have to have a son that's born with special need. You know, why me? I've given young men in my community opportunities to obtain their CDL and become truckers. Man, I have friends right now that, I was, that wanted to be rappers to now running four, five, six trucks. They're still just like rappers, wearing $100,000 with jewelry on. But it was the fact that I was able to really kind of walk them through and understand dispatching, understand how to build operation, understand. So now those guys are building their own trucking companies and they're doing well for themselves, right? And I was really questioning God, like, why me? Why I have to have a son that have this kind of need when I've been doing nothing but good for my community? But when I was in a hospital, when he was in a hospital on his third surgery, that's when I got brutally attacked from the attempt carjacking and robbery. So we both ended up in a hospital together at the same time. He was in Kings County and I was in downstate, two hospitals across the street from each other. He's fighting for his life. Don't know if he's going to make it with the internal bleeding. I'm fighting for my life. They're saying, hey, look, there's a possibility I might be a vegetable as well with the impact that I had in my head. Like my forehead is not real. I have a titanium plate in my forehead. I don't know if you guys can see a line. I have 67 staples in my head. I can show y'all some pictures maybe um before we get off but i think being in the hospital what i said to myself was so yeah my um when i was in the hospital and seeing everything that happened i said you know what if i said that i didn't want to retaliate guys i'll be lying i wanted to come out and hurt those people that hurted me right but again i was in the hospital that i realized that you know this is where us black men usually perpetuates that same vicious cycle in our community. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to retaliate. It stops here. And my friend was looking at me like I was crazy. I was like, what? What do you mean? I was like, no, it stops here. And the reason why I said stop here, I said, you know what? What if that brother would have came up to me and said, man, you're driving a nice car. That's a nice Rolex you got on. What is it that you do for a living? Nine out of 10, I probably would have told them I own a trucking and company and I could show them how to get a CDL and become a fleet owner. But we all know in our community sometimes it's like, hey, look, I don't have it, but I see somebody that look like, clothes like they have it. I'm gonna take it from them. If I don't care if I have to kill them. So I, for me, I felt like that, was, that became part of my mission to prevent another person being hurt in my community is to create fleet and to be able to go back to that community and help. But my son touched me in a way to where I saw how hard the kid was fighting. I said, man, if this guy's fighting for his life at three months old, I said, there's no way I'm giving up on this dream. So I said, God, get me at this hospital alive. I will build a company. I will add technology to build a sustainable, successful company. And that kind of gave me my strength. But to answer the real question about being a founder, being a founder I mean, a father and a founder as well, it's real tough, right? Because at the end of the day, this times that, you know, I spend days there day right here is like, I can't even get two minutes to kind of attend to them, right? It's daddy, 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 because, you know, it's always kind of like head down, running, making sure, hey, you're closing this, make sure. So it's very tough. But however, I do appreciate it in the sense that my children are watching me build a corporation, are watching me build the next things in trucking and seeing the conversation that I'm having. My daughter's 12 years old, right? She's super smart. Recently, the other day, she told me, hey, daddy, me and my friend in school, we're starting a skincare product you know, she's the founder and CEO, and she actually pitched me that business, right? That was touching for me to be able to kind of build something. Although sometimes I felt like, you know, they probably feel like I'm just a bad father. I'm not paying attention to them. I'm always head down working, but they're paying attention. So even Juju, the youngest one with Down syndrome, if you guys follow me on Instagram, you'll see what this guy's mocking me. He's on the couch holding a phone in his hand and banging on the table like he's negotiating. So this is those things that, you know, my kids are seeing, although I feel sometimes that I'm not really attentive to them all the time, which I do, but I think they're really watching what I'm doing. They're really watching in my footsteps. So I think as hard as it is to be a father and be a founder, I think there's also a lot of good positive in it being able, especially, you know, African-American children growing up in a house, seeing their dad as a CEO of a company. To me, that speaks value. To me, that's what's going to allow us to shape the next generation to come because they're actually in the home, seeing it happening. So I think as tough as it is, I'm very grateful to be in that position because, I wish that I lived in a home where I watched my dad build a multi-million or multi-billion dollar corporation. But I will say this though, but I didn't watch my mom as a seamstress build a sizable business at home, right? My mother was never, my mother was an entrepreneur at home. All she did was dresses for weddings, schools, anything you could think of. Our house was the place in Haiti that you would come and do that. So watching my mother Doing that, I believe, is what led me to be where I am today. Can now can you see the pattern, right? Seeing my mom being a seamstress doing this thing in a third world country to be coming here to be a CEO of a tech company that's worth over what 12 million dollars. And then seeing my children, you know, watching me doing this in just in two years to me, I think that speaks value, and I think I'm in the best shape. I'm grateful to be a father and a founder at the same time, regardless of the challenges.
2: This has been a phenomenal conversation today. Um, you've provided an immense amount of perspective. You've given us insight onto your journey. You've uh, allowed us to understand what are the factors that keep you going on a day-to-day basis. And you, you've also given us insight onto the aspects surrounding what it's like to be a parent, right? Like what's it, what's it like to be a father um, and still have to be accountable for all of the responsibilities that come with creating and, and founding uh, your own company. So, with, with all of that, we definitely first and foremost want to say thank you and also provide you one final opportunity to provide a bit more advice, feedback, and, and insight to our audience, right? So, here at Dream Shakers, we're all about paying it forward. Uh, so, what are three pieces of advice that you would give to your younger self?
1: Ooh, three advice that I would give to my younger self. One is, excuse my French for this, you know, F what the world has to say. Number one. I think a lot of times we live, um, we live by social construct, right? And a lot of times we let society dictate who we become and where do we go in life. So I would tell people see the world for what it is, but be a a game changer in the world. Um, Second one that I would definitely say again is, you know, your current situation definitely does not determine your final destination. Because I remember there was times growing up in Haiti, man, I was going to school through political wars, watching people getting killed. Like, you know, and I used to always think that, you know, one of these days I'm gonna be in one of those body bags on my way from school, look at where I am today. So by not allowing that current situation to determine my final destination, I think it has a real impact on where I am today. And the third one that I would say to my younger self or anybody else is best thing ever invented to mankind is another 24 hours. And what do I mean by that is with 24 hours, you can change your surrounding, You can change your perception you can change everything about you and eventually change your reality. So I think those are the main three things that I will let anyone know. But I think the most important one is we all have the 24 hours, right? We all are granted the 24 hours sometimes. Sometimes we don't, right? But what are you gonna do with it when it is granted to you? Once once your feet hit the ground in the morning, that means you was granted another 24 hours. And I think with that, we have the ability to change our surroundings. We have the ability to change our perception and eventually change our reality. So that's definitely what I would love to leave with the audience.
0: Uh, oh, man, brother, uh, definitely got chills through my veins as we, we were going through this interview, man. And I, I definitely appreciate you, King, for for being comfortable sharing your story. As we know, that's not always easy. Um, sometimes we, we let our ego and pride get in the way of things. Um and 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 you know, as a black man it's, it's not easy, right? So we, we appreciate you for, for sharing all the gems. Um shout outs to, to you uh and what you're doing um in the community with fleeting and being a father and also being a role model for other black men like myself, like Steph, and many others who uh eventually will tune into this episode. Um And and even the the recent gems you you said to F the world, seeing what the world is and being a change maker to the world, to the best invention to mankind is another 24 hours. That's deep, brother, and and we uh, agree wholeheartedly. Um, We we plan to have you back on the show for many more episodes. We definitely plan to stay in touch to see what's going on with fleeting, but God bless your soul, brother, and and thank you for for being a dream shaker and, and being a person who is continuously inflicting change in
1: the world. No man, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for what you guys are doing, really highlighting those stories. Like I said, shout out to yourself as well. Make sure y'all get a chance sometime and stop and smell the roses. Make sure you guys look in the mirror and give yourself a pat on the back for what you're doing, bringing bringing me to the show to kind of expose it to our community on a bigger level. I think that's very important. So I would definitely say you guys keep going, keep pushing anything I can do to support. I welcome the opportunity. Let's definitely stay in touch, man, and really appreciate it. You guys are great. I love this.
2: That was a great conversation we just had with Pierre, the CEO of Fleeting. From his start in the industry to the stigma slash challenges he feels the field of trucking needs to address. And finally, how Fleeting as a company is providing solutions that will empower and liberate truckers. What were your thoughts on the interview, George? I couldn't agree more, Steph. I think that
0: the... Unique perspective he was able to provide in the whole startup culture, the startup game, how he got started, uh, how he went from, you know, driving trucks, getting his CDL license to training people, how to get trucks to saying, all right, hey, there's a market for this. Let me improve this from a technological aspect, create a platform and literally create a uh, marketplace that connects Truckers to truck drivers, and that was amazing. Um, him, him being able to pioneer and be the the first Black man to raise the most you can on a um, you know fundraising platform was amazing to hear that milestone from him to being a whole dad, and and understanding that fatherhood isn't always easy as a startup founder. That as we previously highlighted on previous episodes, I'm just happy that we were able to get a guy like that and and literally share the gems and jewels that he learned along the way. So I truly appreciate you, Pierre, and we hope to have you on
2: for future episodes. And with that, we're going to go ahead and switch over to the final segment of our show, and that is the level up. So here's the opportunity we provide you, our audience, to get your own bearings within the field of technology through targeted opportunities that can provide that initial entry point. So first up, we have a product management intern at PayPal and PayPal has been recruiting heavily for product management all year. So here as a product management intern, you will be focused on ensuring the aggressive expansion of PayPal's business, helping to explore key opportunities for growth, creating stellar customer experiences and supporting all aspects of the business while partnering with employees from all backgrounds and organizational silos. Over the course of the summer, you will have the opportunity to think strategically and creatively to gather product and customer insights and help define the product vision and strategy. Analyze current customer experiences to define friction points and create seamless and effortless experiences and build trust and effective relationships with peers slash cross-functional teams. You are a fit for this role. If you have strong analytical and data visualization skills, the ability to juggle multiple priorities and thrive in fast-paced environments. And finally, you are a team player with the ability to interface and build relations at all levels. This internship will be based out of Chicago, Illinois. Now, next up, we have a product design internship at Facebook. So here as a product design intern, you will ensure Facebook's products and features are valuable for people, easy to use, and of the highest level of craft and execution. You will be expected to utilize your full range of product design, interaction design, and visual design skills. Over the course of the summer, you will oversee the user experience of a product from conception to launch in partnership with product managers, engineers, UX researchers, and content strategists. Then design end-to-end flows and experiences that are simple and elegant for Facebook-supported platforms, and solicit and provide feedback from partners to continually improve the quality of Facebook's products through multiple iterations, exploring a range of design options. You are a fit for this role if you have the ability to define how an experience should behave based on understanding people's needs, and you are comfortable using prototyping skills to demonstrate how a particular flow or interaction will work. You are a strategic product thinker with the ability to understand product goals identify opportunities, and make decisions based on the impact to people and the company. And finally, you are able to clearly and succinctly articulate the goals of your team. The internship will be based out of Seattle, Washington. Finally, we have a business intelligence engineer at Amazon. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to impact the evolution of Amazon technology, as well as lead mission critical projects early on in your career. Over the course of the summer, you will use well defined requirements to build a solution that enables effective data driven business decisions, create and populate data structures using one or more schemas, definition languages, and use one or more industry analytics visualization tools and, as needed, statistical methods to deliver actionable insights to stakeholders. You are fit for this role if you have experience with data querying or modeling within SQL, you are familiar with one or more industry analytics visualization tools, and finally, you are currently enrolled in or will receive a bachelor's degree in statistics, computer science, computer engineering, information management, business analytics, or other equivalent technical disciplines. The internship will be based out of Seattle, Washington. Now, those are all of the opportunities I have for you for this week, and I'm going to hand it back to George so he can close us out. Thanks, Steph, for those amazing opportunities Well, that's all, folks.
0: As Porky Pig would say, come on down and come on back to the next episode. We look forward to hearing who you would want to uh, see us interview. Please DM us, comment, uh, leave reviews, subscribe to the YouTube page, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music or even Amazon, wherever outlet you utilize to um, listen to the show. And also uh, follow us on on LinkedIn um, at our Dream Shakers page as well. We look forward to hearing more from you guys and we look forward to seeing you guys come back for the next episode. Take care.